0: Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend, Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off.
1: To know the landscape is to open up a door. Deeper connected than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft.
0: Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And I'm joined today with, of course, my good friend Nikki Satira, and our special guest, Paul McCarney, not the one from Wings, McCarney. This one is from Landscapes and Letters, and he's been a longtime friend of mine. I think Paul I've known since 2012. Yeah, 2012, we've known each other. And we've gone out hunting a countless amount of times for squirrel, duck, deer, uh, goose, you you name it, we've hunted it together pretty much outside of, I think, bear and turkey. And all that while, all those hours spent together hunting, we also spent all those almost exact same amount of time philosophizing around hunting and the landscape and how people interact with that landscape. Paul is a phenomenal writer. He's been, uh, he's been the guest on several podcasts now before hours. And he's also a writer for hunt to eat uh, an amazing website that is all about hunting to eat, about food and our relationship with hunting and paul is our guest today we're gonna be talking about his life up in the north where he's been doing a lot of research and doing a lot of work uh as well as talking about our philosophies around hunting and specifically his philosophies maybe his background of why he got into hunting and what got him into hunting in the first place and what where he is now with hunting so paul welcome to the show
2: thank you that was a great intro
0: it was pretty choppy but not too bad
2: it was good we uh yes you're right we have spent a lot of time hunting and some of that time even actually hunting we've killed some just, animals we've killed not not some just, animals yeah filming things and recording ourselves yeah i feel like this is a
0: slight comment about me and my friends when we go hunting without you
2: no no i just mean that we end up we've, <laughs> we've certainly made con- the conscious the decision to blow our hunts before because we just want to sit there talking and gabbing and
0: <laughs> yep yeah so paul But beyond what I talked about, you want to talk about who you are and uh, help our listeners understand who we're talking to tonight. But by the way, for those of you that checked out our Instagram lives in the past, Paul's been a a special guest on our podcast. Sorry, our Instagram live sessions twice now. Once talking about hunting ethics, another time talking about uh, optics, how, how, how to find the right kind of optics for hunting or for bird watching, whatever you're going to be needing them for. So Paul's no stranger to the Canadian bushcraft crew. In fact, Paul was one of the very first owners of my knife design. Way back in 2013, the very first issue that came into Canada, the first order that came to Canada, Paul was the very first buyer. So he's been a
2: long-time member of the Dragonfly Nation. I've got it sitting right beside me on my shelf, just in case. Beautiful. Just in case, case I need to it. stab me tonight. Just in case I need it ever. ever. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think you. Yeah, I think you covered it. Well, wow. um, we met in Peterborough. I lived in Peterborough for about 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, grew up outside of Toronto and got out of there, uh, as fast as I could. Um, I moved to Peterborough and spent, spent a, a lot of time in Peterborough. Um, did went to school in Peterborough. Um, and then we moved to Northern Labrador, the northernmost fly in community in Labrador in, uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were there for a bit for, and then just moved to St. John's, um, in December, I guess, just for the, a short time. So, yeah. And where where are you off to next? So this is um, yeah. So in May, so I'm, we're here till uh, May, and then uh, May fifteenth, we load everything up, uh, and we're making the drive to Whitehorse and moving to Whitehorse. Um, wow. At that point, yeah. So about as far as you can, as you can go, I think, you corner hate, to corner. You really hate Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't far enough away. It was name name. It took three flights to get there from Toronto in two days and it just, it wasn't still wasn't far. No, no. Yeah. Um, no white horse is great. Uh, white horse is a great place. Um, I've been to Yukon a couple of times and I absolutely love it. So, um, it was, it was definitely a good next place to go. Right on. And the hunting there is amazing. Um, yes. yeah, the hunting is incredible. Um, I've just spent the last year or something looking looking over the Yukon hunting regulations and everything there I mean you can you can hunt you can get a bison license for ten dollars every year you know <sighs> that's insane yeah that's- so the yeah then the species there and this is that's something that I like I'm I definitely I was well, you mentioned in terms of the stuff that you and I have just you and I have it together like I I've when I got into hunting it was always about hunting and not certain species, you know, people talk about, I'm a deer hunter and I identify as a deer hunter, mm-hmm. or as a sheep hunter or whatever, but I always wanted to do like, pursue and hunt as many different things as I could. So that's where I've always kind of gone to is like, which place where can I go that has just so many different opportunities. And I mean, you can't really get more diverse and varied than something like you place like the Yukon where you've got, I mean, just big game species, you've got um, mule deer bison moose caribou sheep goats elk i don't know the and then uh, and then you know small game bear oh, and then bears black bears so yeah
0: and there's a lot to be good and in the north it's a lot how can i explain this for a lot of our listeners who are well, apparently a lot of our listeners are from the northern states which is kind of cool but uh for those of oh, us yeah. that even cool. here in this part of ontario a lot of us, when we go camping, we're thinking we're going into the wilderness. A lot of people will go moose hunting in Ontario as if they're Stephen Rinella going way back country and they load up and they have all the fanciest gear and they talk like they're way back in the wilderness when they were only like a 10 minute car ride from the main road. And here you are going to a place where it is remote. It is truly like White House itself is not a White House. White Horse itself is not remote
2: white house is the place in peterborough that's the the (laughs) fine establishment in downtown peterborough
0: terrifying establishment (laughs) but uh if you go outside of white horse when you go hunting out there it is wilderness oh yeah it is but but it's it's
2: something that i really like about white horse though is um sort of like make the joke that you can you can get you can get coffee in the morning hunt bison and early afternoon and go to yoga class in in the late evening like it's just it's got such a cool um diversity and and such a neat great culture um that but yeah but so much space in the whole in the whole territory there's so much space um and really great like some really interesting wildlife and conservation stories and histories um i I was kind of equally drawn to to that part of things to the to the sort of storied part of things as I am to the actual landscape um we were I was talking with someone about this on the weekend actually um we went out for a rabbit hunt that again turned into a a hike and a conversation more than a rabbit hunt but we were talking about so in in Newfoundland people go way off road they talk about going into the country they say we're going into the country and it's Mm -hmm. it's like when you go way back you're into the country and I said so we were I said so like what is it how do you define that like where we were like are we in the country. I mean, we had this long conversation around like what defines being in the country or in Ontario, we would have called like in the bush, yeah. right? When you're in the bush. And when is it, when are you in the bush? At what point are you actually in the bush versus in the woods or like in the back 40? Mm-hmm. All these back sort of regional, regional differences, right? In like concepts yeah. of it's like backwoods versus back country back country yeah and then back country and then it's like yeah so that's right exactly so you have like i'm in the woods and then it's like well then i'm in the bush and now i'm in the back country and yeah. there's all these different like vernaculars in different places yeah mm-hmm. um yeah i know I'm, I'm super excited about it We're yeah we're it's going to be fun um and uh looking forward to getting you up there when we get there oh yes
0: I have not actually been to the territories yet. It's the one part, like British Columbia and the territories are the places that I'm missing.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've only been through Yellowknife. I haven't been many other places in in uh, Northwest Territories. But then, I mean, I've spent lots of time in different, a few different places in Nunavut as well.
0: I was about to ask. You were up in Nunavut quite a bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, um, two, two places specifically. I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in Kugaruk, which is a... Community in the in the kind of western region of Nunavut. So Nunavut's divided into three regions, um, and uh, uh, Kugaruk is in the western kind of region, and then a lot of the time on Baffin Island um, in both the and uh, Pangnirtung, which is on just north of the Right. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So what t-
0: what took you to all these places? Where why are you living in these Plane, northern- Airplane.
2: What drew, what drew you to these places? You smart-ass. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, um, that's always feels just too cliche. Like the whole, like, Oh, I was always drawn to the North thing, but, but I, but I do like, I remember as a kid always wanting to to go to Whitehorse, go to, to, well, to Yukon. Right. I always wanted to go to Yukon Northwest territories at, at that time. It was only the Northwest territories. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, well, it's funny, there were two places I really wanted to go as a kid, right? I wanted to go to the Yukon and to Newfoundland. And, um, it was like, no, we're not going Choosing the two farthest, most expensive places to, to go. And when you're <laughs> like, you have like a week of vacation with your family in the summer or whatever, like, like not going to the Yukon or go to the beach or whatever. So I never got to go, but I always, always wanted to growing up. Um, and, uh, so, um, just really had wanted to travel, wanted to see the, the, the landscapes, wanted to, we got, you know, really interested in, in the wildlife species there. Um, and that's really, that, that's really it. I mean, there's, there isn't, there isn't a, um, I don't have a, a really um, profound story about, or or reason about why I wanted to, to visit and work and travel in the North. Um, it's just, it was just, it's such a huge part of our country. Um, and I just, I feel that it's, it's a, it's a part. It's a it's a it's an um, ecosystem. It's a region. It's communities that that um, just people don't get to see and they don't go to and they don't appreciate enough. So I when I went into when I um, started my PhD, I was really that was looking for opportunities to go and that was really. Um, that was really what I was looking for. Is I wanted to do some work in the north, so I, I looked around at different university websites and found um, found a professor at York University who studies um, polar bears and seals. Um, and I figured they're in the Arctic. Um, his name's uh, Greg Teeman. Um, he's a, a biologist in the faculty of Environmental Studies at, at York University, and he and I just sort of emailed him cold and. Um, you know, I was my background was all in in social science, right? So um, I kind of found this guy uh, and emailed him. And basically, my pickup line was essentially, you know, I've got I'm not a biologist, I've got really nothing to offer you. Uh, I've never been to the north. Uh, Want to be friends? And uh, <laughs> sent hit send, and then was like, this guy's never going to respond to me. Like I only emailed one like one potential prof. Cause I was like, I just want to go and do, I want to get into wildlife stuff. I want to get into biology. I want to work in the North. I want to work in, in with like clean close relationship with communities as part of my research. And I thought, I'm going to email this guy. If it doesn't work out, doesn't work out. Um, anyway, here we are. And it, it did work out. Um, he's a wonderful guy. He was, he was a great person to work with and he emailed back and he emailed back essentially and said, this is good timing. I have a, I have a project in this, um, community called Kugaruk and we need someone who who's got a social science background because I'm a biologist and I don't have training in social science and we kind of said well let's let's trade then you know I'll do the social science part and you teach me biology and science and natural science and uh, it worked out great so that was what that was what got me there that was what allowed me to actually get a plane ticket to go was um, was working on a, um, a harvest-based seal um, sampling project in Kugaruk um, working with local hunters. So it was, a, it totally also enabled me to, to bring hunting and academic work and conservation and stuff all together into one, into one place, which was, um, which is great. I'm not good at separating things very well in my life sometimes. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be all consuming, it has to be, it has to have every part of everything I like to do. So it's got to have hunting. It's got to have going north. It's got to have wildlife. It's, you know, it's got to have working with people and hunters and stuff. So Yeah.
0: Wonderful. That makes sense. (laughs) Totally. And the question I got for you then is, like, hunting clearly is a big part of your life. Has it always been a big part of your life?
2: No, Um, no, not until um, well, right about the time I, I, I guess not long before I met you. Um, So you figure that we met around two thousand eleven or twelve, right? Yeah,
0: it was just Mm -hmm. uh, the first year of uh, me working for Christine. So yeah, it was twenty twelve.
2: Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. So, um, no, so I, I didn't start getting into hunting until, okay. So it was, would have been 2008. I think I got my hunting licenses, uh, and firearms license in 2008. Um, and first went out Turkey hunting in spring 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in my, I was in my twenties. I was 23 or, or something like that. Um, and came to it much later in life. Um, with a lot of ideas and, you know, values and approaches to things pretty firmly established. So it was, yeah. So I kind of brought a lot of existing perspectives into hunting, rather than it being a part of sort of formative in me developing a lot of a lot of ideas. Um, but yeah, but I mean, as as you know, it has 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 been really kind of all-consuming in my life since then. Um, totally. So yeah,
0: and so before you got into hunting, what was your opinion on hunting? What was your relationship with hunting prior to going out on that turkey hunt in two thousand eight, two thousand nine?
2: I had zero relationship with hunting growing up, um, and at times an antagonistic relationship with hun- with the idea of hunting. I had no personal relationship with hunting, and I'm really conscious to differentiate a relationship with hunting versus a relate or as compared to or distinguished from a relationship with. an idea of hunting and I kind of conceived notion of hunting Mm. and I had no relationship with hunting. I had no friends that hunted, none of my family hunted, I fished, you know, I I grew up fishing. Um, But even then did not, did not think of fishing in the same way, did not think of fishing as a, as a consumptive harvesting type of activity that involved, you know, killing wildlife. Right. Um, My relationship with what I thought was my idea of hunting was at times that really antagonistic. I, um, I can, I mean, I can remember just not understanding just, just not, when I was young, just kind of, you know, the, the, you hear, you hear people say it now is a real cliche. And I can remember saying the words like, well, why, why shoot an animal rather than going to the store and just buying food there. So it's like, when people say that now, I'm like, I can understand that I, I Get that perspective and I look back on that holding that perspective and asking that question as, as um, really sort of bothered with myself but at the same time I'm kind of grateful that I understand it when people that I understand the mindset when people hold it I can kind mm-hmm. of get in getting people's heads a little bit and understand that so yeah no, no, I don't know I went I did a full 180 One um, did a, yeah on, on what I what I knew about it my relationship with it um, and that's, I think that's probably why I became so obsessed with it, I think, because it came later in life. Um, mm-hmm. And I went into it with so many different pieces of my life already formed that, that then became attached to hunting. Um, sort of octopus sort of, I'm, I'm really big on octopuses these days. So sort of this kind of, you know, you think about like getting all those suction cups onto it. Um, and then, and it just like that. So I think that's probably why I think that's, it It was something I know, not something that I ever just took for granted. It was never just there on the background of my, of my mind. You know, it was very mm-hmm. foregrounded when I got into it, which you and I have chatted about because you of course have sort of the opposite background with it.
0: Yeah, I was immersed. But We've ended anything. up in very
2: similar places around how we think about it.
0: Yeah. And that's, I'm not sure why, but I think that's why I've always enjoyed having my conversations with you because when it comes down to hunting i grew up with it. i kind of how can i explain it i'm not jaded to it like i'm never jaded when i'm hunting i'm excited as hell uh to go out and actually be out there and be on the land and have a chance to hunt but when it comes down to it i was raised and immersed with it so much that i didn't really have to think about it i never really had to like consider why do i do it and mm-hmm. it was around the time that you and I met was around the time that I was starting to actually question like hey so why do I hunt and how do I hunt and why are these mm-hmm. things important to me <clears throat> can I do these things in a better way or is there a better way is there a more ethical way is there a more traditional indigenous way that I could do these things that's better and mm-hmm. it was around the time that I met you and you were having your own philosophical questions coming up as you were hunting so we'd be out sitting there in a blind waiting for ducks to come in and you would just pop a question with a little anecdote and I'd be like oh shit okay yeah let's have this conversation and we would just ignore <laughs> the ducks flying over our heads completely missed we weren't them.
2: gonna hit anyway <laughs> we weren't gonna hit them anyways
0: they're way out of range but uh we would just sit there and just talk for like two three hours mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of a, it was kind of good that it's we started off our hunting relationship with ducks because we wouldn't have been able to have that conversation deer hunting
2: Oh, I was just telling this when I went out rabbit hunting this past week, we were talking about this in that, like, that's exactly it. That when I I started out turkey hunting, and I mean, not only can you not talk, you cannot move. (laughs) Yeah. Deer hunting is a little bit, you know, you can whisper a bit, but I, you're absolutely right. When I started waterfowl hunting and then small game hunting, I was like, oh my God, I can, I can hunt. And also ramble on for hours with someone who can't move because they're stuck in a blind with me. It was great. And it's, it totally is. I mean, you, um, you talk about like the conversation you have on our campfire, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. In a, in a duck blind, it's like, yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah. There's, there's something beautiful about going hunting du- uh, for duck, for waterfowl in general, like geese, like goose hunting in a field. It's a bunch of guys laying in a field, covering themselves with whatever camouflage they can and shouting to each other. Just shouting to each other their conversation, and oh, I hear a goose, and everybody suddenly goes dead silent. And then all of a sudden you hears and everyone starts bastardizing their goose calls. And that flock passes over, nobody gets a shot off, and they just exactly sort of start shouting again. Oh, they're mm-hmm. too high, they're too high. Yeah, they're totally too high. Yeah. Sure, they probably weren't, but whatever. Yeah. And it's it's this beautiful thing compared to like sitting still with a bow in your hand in a tree stand on your own and waiting for lunch break to go and chat with the guys, about the squirrel you saw, you don't really get a chance to sit there. You have all the time in the world on your own in a tree stand to think about stuff and process things and develop your own pedagogy mindset, whatever you want to call it. And then you can come back to the hunt camp and chat about that at the hunt camp at the, around the fire. But then when you're out in a duck blind, you can just have a sounding board with you while you're out there, just chatting about what you're seeing, whether it's uh, whatever, wh- whether it's your philosophies behind conser- uh, conservation hunting. Like, okay, so why don't we take more golden eyes than one a year? All the way to, mm-hmm. hey man, like, why do you wear those waders? Like, there's so many different kinds of conversations that can happen in a blind when you're waterfowl hunting, which is why mm-hmm. I really enjoy it because as much as I like to be out there on my own focusing on the hunt there's there's this beautiful thing of being able to have a conversation like we're having right now but actually in person not virtually
2: well I think that's why people there's so many I mean hunting podcasts have just proliferated in the last few years right Mm -hmm. and I mean that's why right like we're (laughs) as a group of people we're so like we're so accustomed to just shooting the shit yeah just going on and on tangents and rabbit holes and just yeah exactly meandering conversations that um that we kind of i think i think that's probably why uh hunting podcasts have become so big um yeah I would, yeah for I sure wouldn't,
0: i wouldn't doubt it i remember when i first when you first introduced me to steve ranella's podcast like five six years ago that was like i i went online immediately started looking for hunting podcasts and there was like two there was his yeah. and like I can't even remember who the others was. I think it was Mark Kenyon or somebody else had their own podcast. And then in the last like three years, it's exploded. Like, luckily, like a lot of people, are like, oh, you have a hunting podcast because you've talked about hunting like six times, like six times out of 57 episodes. Mm-hmm. We talk, mm-hmm. we try to talk about everything. We don't try to just talk about yeah. hunting. And I I'm really glad for that because I don't want to become like typecast or set into just no, hunting, exactly, all the time. Yeah,
2: because yeah. it's not. Yeah.
0: How many times can I talk about a goose
2: call? A lot. I <laughs> In mean, person, I mean, yes. Uh, yeah, no, I can. And I mean um, the right amount, which is which is no less than a million, which is the appropriate amount of times to talk about goose calling. Um, but uh, I know what you mean. I know what you mean for sure. And I think I've, I've been, I don't, uh, I don't, I can't keep up with the hunting podcasts that come up. I, I hear about new ones every single week. Um, but I will say that what I I do appreciate about a lot of the ones I've seen popping up is, um, even within the kind of topic area of hunting, um, most of the ones that I have encountered, maybe it's just sort of exposure bias. I don't know, but most of the ones that I've encountered, um, they're not just talking gear, talking strategy, and then talking gear and strategy back and forth. They go from, like you say, they go from gear to then. Big meandering ethical conversations to talking with writers to, um, to, you you know, biologists to, uh, and they kind of, they kind of run a a bunch of different topics. And I, I think it's, um, it's really, it's definitely encouraging to see hunting multimedia and hunting media, um, kind of pursuing the full range of complexities that are involved in hunting. Like you say, you know, you, you, hunted for so many, many, many years and in your twenties still found things that you needed to question and look into to keep totally. it interesting and to keep it relevant and to, and to um, actually keep it meaningful, you know?
0: Totally. And there's another beauty I've seen, because I started looking into all these different hunting podcasts. Cause I was curious because I, frankly I just went to your website I was just going on I was getting some more information for you this past couple of days getting ready to talk about tonight and I went to your podcast section you had the podcast you were on and I started checking out those podcasts so I went over to uh, Spotify and started checking out different podcasts on there all about hunting and on there I came across this realization that there's a lot more intersectionality happening on these podcasts and on social media regarding hunting than I ever ever experienced watching hunting shows or reading hunting magazines or anything like that
2: oh man remember the old hunting well i don't know maybe they're still out there but the old hunting shows it was just like a guy whispering in a tree stand for 18 minutes <laughs> shooting a deer for and they would show the shot for two minutes yep, and then their credits would roll <laughs> yep. and like you can bet you would you can bet that like at some point be like they'd be whispering something and it would be like so let's see what happens. And then it would cut. And then a little while later, they'd be like, saw a big buck over there. Let's see what happens. And it was just, it was just the same, like it was the same thing over and over again. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, I totally agree. I got, um, and I, and I, you know, I found myself. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you have a direction you want to go here, but we'll just, I'm just going to keep shooting the shit. And then let's just meander, me man.
0: let's just meander.
2: But I found myself going there again. Um, a year or two ago, uh, getting just getting a bit jaded with the narratives and the repetition, um, and I found there were, I was really motivated and inspired at some point as hunting as I saw kind of hunting media and hunting topics and 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 people um, kind of push the conversation and push the narrative. And then I it's I don't know maybe it's just my per, my perception of things, but it seemed to me that 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 the progressiveness and the and the um, the kind of critical nature of the of the hunting conversation more broadly seemed to plateau a bit and it seemed to sort of slow down. And I found myself um, with hunting media and social media, especially, um, I was just getting a bit frustrated with it. I was getting a bit jaded with it. I didn't find that we were engaging collectively in important social discussions. Um, and like you said, I kind of, I came across um, Hunt to Eat, which was, um, which is a clothing company. I mean, they make, they make their t-shirt company yep. and I had heard about them for years. And, um, you know, I have enough t-shirts. I never, I never really pay, I'll be honest, paid a whole lot of attention to them other than just another kind of hunting company. And it was in June when, um, June, 2020, um, when, um, things really started to, to pick up in a, in a, in a big and powerful way around black lives matter. Um, you know we had gone through the, the, the continent had gone through I don't know more it had seen um, it, pipeline protests it had seen so many of these major social issues and it just seemed that the hunting community put their blinders on and just kept going with, with business as usual making focus their, whispering, on hunting, focus on their hunting. whispering TV shows yeah yeah and um, you know in June um, Mating Patella the CEO of Hunty E put up a I followed him on Twitter or Instagram or whatever platform. And he put up a video of him um, in tears, talking about what the what Black Lives Matter meant to him that. and how he was intending that. to engage with it. I ordered a t-shirt that day. I went, got on my computer and ordered a t-shirt that day because I just thought, well, great, now I can, this is just the t-shirt at that point, which is an entry into the conversation. It was an mm-hmm. entry into being able to say, oh, it's a hunting company, but you know what they did and you know what they stand for. And that was, that's like, it, it just really sparked um, a real kind of reinvigoration for me of, of where the kind of leadership is going to be in the hunting world and who is going to lead kind of lead the way there um mm-hmm. and so the, yeah i mean full disclosure this is not a, this is not just a plug for hunt to eat at all i i mean um there are other kind of your company as well i mean you and i on when we got on instagram um in the fall I, this was not far away from that I, I think it was in it was in august or september when we got on and yeah you know, we talked a lot about this as well and, um, and just, you know, the, the hunting community and the hunting narrative and conversation needs to engage with these, with this stuff. Um, yeah. So I don't know how we got on that. Um, it's,
0: it, it was a powerful video to watch when I saw it myself. I was, uh, I think I was picking spruce buds to make, uh, to make some food. And I just happened to get on the phone and go onto my Instagram to post a picture of this beautiful bag I had that was hand woven. And then when I went on, I saw that video and I just like, okay, what's this about? And I just started watching it. And I was in tears with them. It was the first time I'd seen a white man talking uh, who's a, who's a hunting company. It's, this is not where they usually talk about this stuff, talking about intersectionality Mm -hmm. in the hunting community and that hunters need to step up and protect our community, protect Mm -hmm. our, our black members of our community. And to get um, on the line, right? Like, to, yeah. To, yeah, pony up. Um, it was, it was beautiful to see. And then since then, I've seen him promoting uh, everything from like Hunters of Color, mm-hmm. HOC, which is something, an organization that you got me in touch with. Uh, Hunters of Color is another amazing organization who are trying to get people of color into hunting and going through mentor. And I'm actually on their waiting list right now. They're, they're going to be getting back to me. In the so next am I weeks.
2: Awesome. to be a mentor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy. So Lydia is from, um, she's a uh, Haudenosaunee. No, Jimmy's she... life, Lydia is from, uh, I don't, I, I she's Canadian. I, I believe she's Canadian, but um, I think she's from, um, I think, uh, anyway, I, I don't want to misspeak, but I, 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 but yeah. Um, she's holding
0: yeah. yeah Very cool. This, this needs to happen. Things like that need to happen in our community. Mm-hmm. And we need to have, there's like going on right now, the Nishmanadok hide tanning, uh, hide tanning camp that happens every year, run by my friends Hunter and Beezy. Uh, it's a it's an indigenous two spirit or for those who don't know what two spirit is it's two spirit or Manado, uh is not something that I am and so I can't easily speak upon it or speak about it but it's basically the LGBTQ plus of indigenous of indigeneity the concept of the two spirit is something that's very sacred to Anishinaabek people and so they've been forming this hunt camp and moose hide tanning camp around bringing in LGBTQ plus kids and youth to learn traditional hunting and learn traditional hide tanning. Where is
2: that? Where do they they're based operate? up in
0: they're they're based out of Georgian Bay area? Oh, they're in Ontario. Yep, yep. They're just up in uh, between Penetang and Midland, I believe. And they teach all the way up, they teach all the way up and down the, the coast of the of Georgian Bay. Phenom- and I've I've hunted with both of them. They're f- they're fucking amazing people. I love them to death. And Hunter is a badass trapper who I've taught them some stuff, but they learned a lot from their grandfather and they are some of my favorite people in the world. And it's amazing to see what they're doing to bring in more intersectionality with the concepts of hunting because for a long time, it's been perceived as it was a white boys club. It, it, it frankly has been, that's just what it has been for a long while. And it's not the case. There's a lot of people, one of my best friends he's from Guyana well his fa- his heritage is Guyanese and he goes out hunting with me almost every year and I've mentioned multiple times like hey man like we should do this and this and you should get out there for hunting with this and you should go to the range with that and he's like I don't feel safe because I'm brown he I was like man yeah. you got to grow your beard out he goes do you want do you understand how terrifying it is to be a brown man with a beard in Canada
2: well and that's where and that's shit. where hunters of that's where I came across hunters of color they posted a um a video of a Guy was hunting in the Southern States and had people, um, he was a young guy, the black kid and had people running around, screaming things, playing racist music. I mean, first of all, blowing his hunt. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was kind of how I came across came across hunters of color. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exactly it. And I mean, you're seeing um, there's a great um, organization called uh, Queers and Camo and they're on yeah. um, on instagram um and what sarah's being uh, sarah Keller, with, uh, with with that platform is great and i think that that they're going to do some great things um and uh oh yeah yeah no, i know i mean i'm i'm pumped and excited to see um to see these things coming emerging and um you know and it's still like i still find myself you do you kind of go in these Peaks and troughs I think emotionally with this stuff because you get all excited to see see these things coming out, and then um, and these platforms emerging and, and companies starting, and then um, you get complacent in your in your group doing good things, and then um, you, you know you I, I we were talking about this earlier just just yesterday, and you come across you come across things that are still still being said and still being done in the outdoors community and the hunting community um and just absolute trash individuals who are still putting women down and um excluding people um and uh it's infuriating um and it's it's yeah it's um i don't even i don't know i don't even know it's it's one of these things that it's like you get to a place where there's a lot of things where you learn how to articulate yourself about them because you need to, because you find that there's so many different perspectives on something that you need to be able to um, to wrap your thoughts up and articulate them. And you come to something like this and you hit a, a brick wall because it's like, how on earth do I have to be articulating to you that, that kind of perspective and that kind of um, disgusting approach to, to to running the hunting community is just unacceptable um percent, you know and and and, and I mean I, I also point out to people that hunting hunting and conservation hunting and fishing and conservation in the outdoors has never been a man's world and never been an all-man's game this is yeah, the right. narrative and this is a situation that we've constructed um yep. And I won't say we because I won't insult the, the two people that I'm talking to as as being part of that. It's it's a, it's a world and it's a narrative that other people have constructed deliberately to reinforce their own place in it. Um, when you look back through history, and I mean, you, you know, you and I have talked about this because it's it's also a very narrow cultural um, perception of what hunting is to say that it's it's a man's thing and it's it's a it's a white guy's thing. And it's a straight person's thing. Um, it's never been the story of of hunting throughout human history um, it's, it's a recent um, sort of bastardized uh, portrayal of what of what hunting and conservation is um, that people have have constructed to, to support themselves um, totally. and yeah and I mean as much as as much as it's it's I think I think where I'm getting to with with it now is is recognizing how um, how how harmful and how violent the, the, that, that kind of narrative of um, it being the, the, the sexism and hunting and um, the racism and the transphobia and how absolutely violent that is to, to people but also to the integrity and the value of the hunting community that we need to tear those things down as violently as they enact themselves. Um, they need to be, it needs to be part of every conversation we have in hunting. It needs to be, um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, um, I've, I've certainly started pissing into the wind when it comes to this conversation around, well, we, you know, we, we got to be careful because if we start criticizing hunting, we're just opening the crack to the anti hunters. And, and I, I, no, no, we're not, no, no, we're not. not. And quite frankly, if, um, if hunting and the hunting industry and the outdoors industry has to fall apart. To dismantle these these issues, then um, let it, let it, and we'll build it back. Yeah. Um, much better. We had we had an
0: altercation, not an altercation. I want to say that because it makes it sound like there's a lot more violence or aggression than there was, but we got invited. My group, uh, we have a a small group of hunters that we all hunt together. We're all young bucks, and that's why we call it the young buck hunting group. We're not a hunting club. We're not an organization or anything like that. You can't join it or fucking. a membership or anything like that it's just we're the young guys in the area that hunt together and we hunt together because we get along in a lot of our perspectives and it's not just guys we have two spirits in the group we have women in the group and we have people of multiple colors and multiple faiths in that group and this past fall uh we got invited uh four of us got invited to go on a goose hunt with four other guys uh in an area that we both hunt in so why not you know team up might as well work together to get the geese And while we're hunting with these guys, there's me and the three guys that I brought with me and all of us are cis hetero men. One of them was a man of color. I'm white passing. So I consider myself a white man in everybody's eyes. And when we're sitting there, we're just hearing the one guy go and go and go with the most vulgar opinions on women, the most vulgar comments about homosexuals and just disgusting dialogue. And we just kept looking at each other and kept on trying to hunt, no keys were flying that day. So we got to sit there from 5.45 in the morning until 10 a.m. listening to this guy's diatribe of just disgusting, vulgar rhetoric. And when we left, we helped pack up, we stayed polite, we packed everything up, we let them leave, we stopped to have a break for a second, and I just turned to the guys and I'm like, I am never hunting with these sons of bitches again. This is not happening again. If you guys want to hunt with them, by all means. And then one of the guys turned and goes, we have gay, trans, and, and we have gay and trans people and white and women in our group. I can't feel safe bringing them here. And then another one said, I'm brown. And this guy was saying shit that was on the cusp of racist. And he was, just, I, you could tell he was just keeping his mouth shut because there was a brown guy in the group. I don't feel safe here. And about a week and a half later, the guy texts me, he goes, Hey, we're going to go out again next, uh, this coming Sunday. And I said, you will not see me. You will not see my guys. We're not interested. And he threw back a bunch of vulgarity and texts like what the your problem, all that kind of stuff. And I responded back. My problem is you. My problem is your, your mindset, your personality, and your attitude towards women, LGBTQ plus brown people, everything. I have problems with you on every single level of my fucking virtues
2: and my ethics. i'd be shocked i'd be shocked if the if if the person i don't know, maybe maybe he is but i'd be shocked if the person is an exemplar of um conservation ethics and
0: no i i i don't have any reason to believe he would be bad or good
2: <laughs> but i wouldn't be surprised yeah that and I, but i think that surprised. that's where but that's where i kind of go with this right is i oh yeah I've, i have i have um stopped hunting with more people than I think I still hunt with for the same reasons. Um, because I, uh, you know, I got, when I started hunting, it was a, it was a, I realized like, um, I didn't have places to hunt. And I didn't have people to hunt with. And there was this, you, you go through this as a, as a, someone who starts hunting later, you go through this, you know, anyone I can hunt with any invitation I get, I got to go because I don't have my own places to go. I don't know how to do it. I don't have mentors. Um, and you know we can come back to the role of mentorship and the need to um, to, to cultivate both ethical ethical hunters as mentors and and the 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 role that um, people who are who, who promote justice and social equity in in the role of that in in being a good ethical hunter. But you know you take you yeah going back I you know take every invitation i can possibly get and you bounce back and forth as as a as someone who comes to hunting later going you know i'll just go hunt and then i'll leave and i won't i don't i don't have to bring that nonsense with me when i leave the hunting woods but i'll just go hunt and you sort of compartmentalize them or at least you try to maybe um and at some point you realize that um you know, we talk about hunting being such a way of life. It's not just an activity. It's not just golfing um, where you put the golf clubs back in the trunk later. um, You're done looking like a jackass for the day and you, and you go home Um, because that is such an, such a, it's so ingrained and it's so woven into every aspect of how we see the world and how we, how we move through the world and stuff. And so if that's the case, which it is, I think for a lot of people who hunt and it certainly became like that for me, then how can we possibly make the argument that we are going to separate Social ethics, and um, from from what we do in the woods and how we are good hunters, um, and I and I, when I started thinking of it that way, I became very comfortable um, separating the wheat from the chaff in that way, and, oh, and yeah. just saying, you know, if I don't get to go hunting this season, then so be it, because I'll go hang out with people um, who I who are good people and who I and I who I believe in, um, and avoid people who who are not good people. Totally. Um, and you know, luckily, I've found like yourself. I found good people who, um, who I enjoy spending time with, and I feel comfortable with, um, and uh, uh, who I think are leading the way to make hunting better, uh, hunting and fishing and conservation better. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a tough thing to do to to be very comfortable. Um, really accepting that they're, that they are this, your, your, your social ethics are the same as your hunting ethics. Um, and feeling no apology whatsoever in bringing your social and in your human, your human ethics into the hunting, hunting woods with you and enforcing them there. Um, and I think that's where we really need to get to is we need to start enforcing them. And it, it's not just when we're out hunting, it's not just following the law and it's, it's in, it's in hunting media, it's on social media, it's on, it's, in our everyday interactions, um, and challenging these things, and like you, you know, like you did, um, and I think that's yeah, I think that's so important um, with where hunting is going. Um, and we're not doing we're not doing hunting as a as a tradition, as a lifestyle, as a support, as a, as a as a sport, as a hobby, whatever it is to you. We're not doing that thing any benefit, and any good, and any favors by allowing people to continue to behave um,
0: in a toxic way.
2: Yeah, and the talk, I, absolutely. I was going to use more colorful language, but exactly to bring such toxic behavior and um, into, into hunting, it's not helping us. And especially right now, I mean, hunting has got, got a PR problem right now. Um, mm-hmm. Social media and hunt, hunting is not representing itself well in social media um, and we need to do better at that. And I think a huge part of that is starting to be a lot more vocal and a lot more visible in enforcing our social um, justice ethics in hunting, totally. Um, and I just, at this point in my life, just I I'm not making apologies for it. I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to die um, with the number of followers I have on Instagram carved into my headstone. I don't give a shit <laughs> who I lose um, in my life at this point. Um, you know. So uh, yeah, totally.
0: And that's, and that's the way to look at it. Like I've seen outside, outside of hunting altogether, like going back to the BLM movement that like, it started years ago. Like people make it sound like BLM just started this year. BLM has been around since 2016. Well,
2: exactly. Yeah.
0: And it only has been getting stronger and stronger with its opinions and nothing has been changing. But back in June on the same day that I saw that post from, from from Hunt Mm -hmm. to Eat, uh i saw seth rogan's comments on his own post like this is a this is a hollywood celebrity from vancouver who from his imbibement of cannabis i'm sure you can assume that he's a little, a little bit left-leaning but he flat out like would not at any time tolerate any racist comments in his in his comment section and was responding to them with f-bombs everywhere and telling him to go get fucked and get uh, get the fuck out and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. And not hmm. standing down. He would not stand down to anybody that came on There's like, hey, calm the hell down. No, fuck you. I'm not going to calm I down. Never, I story. never heard about that. It was beautiful to watch because it's like, I've never been a fan of Seth Rogen. I'm not, he's not really my sense of humor. But I, 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 I that was the first time I ever rented on, t- on my computer. I rented a movie and it was, uh, this is the end. Just because I knew I liked that movie, but it was going to send some money his way. I immediately became a supporter of his just because of how he stood his ground against all those people and this has nothing to do with bushcraft and this has nothing to do with hunting but it has everything to do with like he suited my social opinions and I had to support that and his tenacity was exactly what I was looking for when I when I need to stand my ground on stuff like this
2: yeah I I totally agree no I totally agree and that was um uh I had my I had the same experience the people at that time um, and I, I've had the same experience with with uh, public figures and celebrities um, around hunting and conservation and, and wildlife issues as well um, you know we talked about the same thing when Ellen deGeneres um, just you know came spoke about the seal hunt um, and um, yeah I lost a, a great deal of support for her um, in that moment mm-hmm. Um So it it happened, I, I I do the same thing, um, in all sorts of different parts of my life around hunting and around social issues. And, and, um, so it's, it's not a stretch for them to be together and part of the same conversation. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this before as well. So I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about this too. Um, around, you know, when I started, like I said, when I started hunting, I, I was, I was in my my master's degree, so um, it was someone on my it was a, one of my master's committee members who really got me into hunting. Um, so I came to hunting with really a kind of firmly entrenched set of social and political values and ideas and experiences that I that I needed to be able to apply to hunting and find a home for in hunting in order for hunting to be meaningful to me. Um, if that makes sense or if I couldn't enact those social values and, and ethics in hunting, I don't think hunting would have, would have stayed meaningful to me. Um, I could have taken up golf. I don't think I would have found a home for strong environmental justice movements and anti-racist well, maybe golf. That's funny. That's a maybe a funny example because golf absolutely needs to attend to some of to its sexist and racist histories, but, um, I guess what I mean is that I don't think if I would have found a home for some of this stuff so meaningfully in another activity, but, um, yeah, so I, I brought a lot of these existing values and ideas to hunting. And, um, I'm curious about your, um, I'm curious about your experiences in that same thing, you know, growing up with your experiences. Did, did you, where did you find, um, that you, that they, kind of came together for you or were they always together? Your your sort of political and social values and ethics with with hunting. Um, or did you find that they were always there? I think I was kind of blessed because the guy
0: that took me hunting, my mentor for hunting was my father, who kind of already instilled a lot of my ethics into me. He he was always that guy that stood his ground. He was always that guy that if he knew if it was right, he's going to stand for it. And if it's wrong, he's not going to stand for it. So I was kind of a little bit more inclined to be able to already speak my mind in the world of hunting beyond that um i often had to just keep my head down because i was always the young buck i was always the young pup i was always the bitch of the camp whatever they want to call me and i was the one that always had to do all the hard labor i was always i always had to prove my uh, my place earn my place and keep my mouth shut when they all had their own bullshit going on in the camps and you've been to hunt camps before a lot of people who are listening have probably been to hunt camps there there's often a long traditions that are happening there and a lot of those traditions don't want to change they don't want to evolve they don't want to adapt that's tradition that's how they hunt and a lot of them are completely like okay a lot of those traditions are totally fine there's nothing wrong with them they don't really have to evolve or change we have lunch at twelve thirty on this ridge every day. That's where we have lunch. Okay, yeah, fine. That's that's fine. I I'd rather be over there in the shade because it's really hot today. But fuck it,
2: whatever. But we're we still hunting because we now know that ungulates still move midday. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Things like that.
0: Um, all those kinds of traditions, I'm fine with. But there was certain ones that I would have to just keep my head down because they didn't jive with my ethics or my morals or my opinions and I it was it wasn't until I was 22 years old when I realized I can leave these camps I don't have to go to these camps just because these are where my dad goes like and he tolerated it and he would call them on their bullshit once in a while but he knew sometimes it was just you're not going to change their minds you're not going to change their opinions you're not going to change how they do things so he would just keep his head down and that was very eye opening for me when I was 22 to see my father keep his head down mm. when all growing up, he didn't, it was very contrary to what I understood. And I confronted him about it and we had an argument and I basically said, okay, I'm done. I'm not hunting with this hunt camp anymore. And, and how old were you then? 22. I was 22 okay. years old yeah, yeah. when okay. I, I made that decision. Yeah. And I had been hunting for a decade at that point. It was the f- And it was the first time I killed a deer because they would always put me in the shit spot because I'm the young guy. I shouldn't be the one that gets a deer. And I happened to get a deer and the guys were butthurt and they were annoyed and they were frustrated. And a couple of them made some, uh, made some comments that I was just fed up with hearing all the time. And I just kept my mouth shut and I started packing my stuff. I, I, I flattered packed myself. like, I know that we're not done until Sunday and today is Thursday. We're an hour from home. I'm going home. I'm not staying. And my father's like, okay, I'll drive you. And he was driving me and he was furious with me. He's like, you're embarrassing me. Oh, really? Like, he, I can't. What are you doing? Like, why are you acting so angry? I'm like, I'm tired of this harassment and I'm tired of these comments and I'm tired of how these guys act. And I'm fed up with it. And my father was dumbfounded that I actually was standing my ground about it when he never had. And he's like, well, this was the hunt camp that my father went to. And I don't want to rock the boat. And I was like, that's when it finally clued in. Like this was one of his last memories, like parts that he could really connect to his dad still with why he oh, went okay. there. Yeah. And so he was tolerating the more toxic behavior simply because this is where his father lived. This is where his father was his father. Yeah. When he was the, the good memories of his dad were were hunting. And I understood that, but I couldn't go back to myself, like, that's not what I want to remember of you. This is not what I want to remember of you and remember remember of us.
2: That's so, so interesting, right? That like yeah, I could see that, that your, your memory of it would have been of your dad, not speaking up for things that you valued. Yeah. Whereas for him, if he had to do that in order to feel close to his, yeah, it's, it's super complicated. I mean, be, I think that's, there's no black yeah. and white for sure. No, um, no. And, and I think that that's it. That's, that's absolutely part of it is that we, um, well, I mean, yeah, we're going to make mistakes <laughs> totally in this, in this process, but, um, and I, at least
0: I've left other hunt camps and one of them, I really didn't want to leave. And I, and I, I, it's not that I left them. I'm still part of that hunt camp. It's just a three and a half hour drive to go deer hunting. And I have deer in my backyard. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's the main issue for me is like, I would love to go out and hunt with those guys. They're phenomenal guys. Every single, when I went to that hunt camp, it, it had been, uh, I was 27, no, no, 26 when I went to that hunt camp. So it'd been four years since I'd been to a hunt camp and I was just hunting in the backwoods around my property. And that's all I hunted on. And then I went that year with my dad to the new hunt camp that he had joined because he eventually left that hunt camp for the same reasons I left it. Mm -hmm. And I'm there. And there was one guy that said some stuff that was off color. No. And that's not like a double entendre. He just said some stuff that was vulgar. He wasn't being racist. He wasn't being um, uh, misogynist or anything like that. He just said stuff that I really didn't jive with. And really pissed me off. And I kept hunting because, you know, I'm the new guy. Maybe I just don't understand the dynamics here. And within a second of them noticing that I looked pissed off, they went off on him. All the other guys in the hunt game, like, hey, don't talk like that. That shit's not acceptable here. And these are guys that are my father's age. These are guys that are now in their 60s. Some of them were in their 70s when I met them there. And they're like, nope, that's not tolerated here. And sure enough, the very next season, he wasn't welcomed back. And that was a huge, I was like, I'm justified in how I feel. And there will be people that stand yeah. with me. Holy shit. I felt empowered and I felt safe there, but it's a three and a half hour car ride for a deer. I, I could, I just can't justify the gas mileage and all that stuff for that kind of a hunt.
2: You know, it's interesting if I was a more poetic fella, um, there's certainly a, there's certainly a sort of interesting metaphor around the fact that most of the time when we're hunting, we're sitting alone with our thoughts and not not speaking. And then, you, you, then you have these times where you realize, no, no, when we speak up, that's when it gets better, right? And, and, yeah. it, and it is this, it, we, we tend to sometimes, well, we've kind of been talking around this, right? That, that hunting sort of exists in this sort of pause from the rest of our life. We go to hunt camp and it's like, what happens at hunt camp? Doesn't even, it's not just that what happens at hunt camp stays at hunt camp. It's this idea that like what happens at hunt camp has no moral bearing and impact in a relationship with the rest of our lives. And it sort of becomes this thing similar to when we're sitting on stand, just silent and it just nothing, you know, it just sort of exists outside of things, but man, you're right. When that's, it's a watershed moment when you're, when you're like, Oh, I can do this and I can speak up and I can enforce these, these things in my life in this part of my life as well. Um, And what's even better is that there's other people who are going to jump in and who all, who I will still have, you know, um, and it's great. It's, it's, it, I, I think that that's, and I've had similar experiences um, And it. It's a great sort of moment when you realize that, um, and it, that it, that it's not closing off hunting to you, that it's opening up all kinds of other um, far more meaningful ways to, to hunt and to spend time in the outdoors. And I don't know how, like, you know, I get to this, to that point there where, where that's so clear in that instance that you're talking about, when you're not invited back and the, the person's gone and you when you went from an immediate presence to absence in that situation there, there was the presence of you know sexism racism whatever it was and immediately then there was the absence of it and then we go into the the broad like broader society around hunting and conversations around hunting and it's so much more complicated than that you have all of these things all of these issues around sexism and racism and all of these tied up with an industry, and as with every other part of our lives that are tied up in capitalism and um, and and things that need to make money, you know, it's it's difficult to disentangle those. You have companies that make money by promoting by maintaining a narrative that reinforces sexism. And it's not just a simple matter of, well, that person's out of the hunt camp and now it's done. Now, the, now the, the, the negativity is gone. We have all of these things tied up in society and, and media and economy. And I don't know how we start to, to or how we continue to keep shifting this. Um, but it's certainly something that, um, yeah, that I've agonized over lately, especially, um, yeah I don't have the answer no um, I don't think
0: anybody will have the answer anytime soon at least it's it's incredible like the more you look at like I remember I was out hunting with your partner uh, Christine with your girlfriend uh partner girlfriend what do you guys prefer to call girlfriend
2: either is fine yeah okay
0: uh her and I were out bow hunting just before Christmas of like 2013 2012 or 2013 I can't remember what year it was uh, we went out bow hunting and the conversation turned to pink camouflage, <laughs> just fly like pink camouflage. And I, and I, the day before had seen two guys that were bigger and burlier than me in pink camouflage. And I was like, oh, holy shit. These guys are like, maybe they're LGBTQ. Like, I have no idea. So I went, up and was like, Hey, like, that's pretty cool looking camo. Cause it wasn't like your classic like fake army surplus, bright pink with a bunch of browns and grays on it. It was like well-made camouflage hunting gear that had pinks throughout it. And I was like, so what's that all about? They're like, well, I was like, Hey, I like your outfits. Like, where'd you get those? And they're like, well, actually we we had to get these specially made because we prefer the color pink over orange and it's mid season right now. So there's people that are like, when we go hunting, we're usually bow hunting during rifle season. So we want to have visibility, but we don't necessarily want to be wearing orange and deer can't see in the pink spectrum any more than they can see in the rest of the red spectrum. So we wore pink and I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I mentioned that to Christine. She goes, cool. I still fucking hate pink camouflage. And I was like, Oh shit. I, you thought I was trying to like, like mansplain it or something. That's not what I, I was just seeing that there was a different perspective. I it. I thought that was fa- fascinating. And I had to backtrack and like apologize. And was like, that's not what I'm getting at. Please don't think that's what I'm trying to say. And we had a long conversation of just like, the hunting world makes shit women's hunting gear it'll be single stitched uh pants instead of double or triple stitched pants it'll be glued on soles instead of stitched excuse me stitched and glued
2: oh and the boots are brutal boots are boots are not it's difficult they're to bullshit. find boots that are either they're either warm or they have good uh, traction and, and treads on them um, and neither both and um, the pink and shrink it sort of-, of sort of movement is um yeah.
0: It's, it's been it's been it's interesting problematic to
2: see. And then
0: I go on like Instagram and I type in like I don't do a lot of bow hunting. I do a shit ton of bow fishing though. I absolutely love to go bow fishing for carp, for sucker, whatever I can get my hands on. Well, my arrow on really. I it's it I live right on Rice Lake and we have a carp problem on this lake. So I love to go out and just shoot as many carp as I can and bring them in and I'll take the, I'll take the back meat off and I'll, I'll cook that up in a, in a curry. And then the rest of the carp goes right into the corn mounds where I grow all my food. So I go on social media and type in both hashtag bow fishing and 90% of of the images are women as sexualized as they can hunting with a bow for fish. And it's like, okay, I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that. But why are we hypersexualizing the women hunters and the women fishermen? Why do we have to have? Why do they have? If they want to have hits on their Instagram page for what they do, they have to pose in those positions with those bows or those rifles to show their ass and show their their body in every way possible to make sure they get those likes. And it bothers me because I have some amazing huntresses and fisherwomen in my collective, in my friends, that are Badasses. My friend Stephanie Stevens goes noodling for catfish down in uh, the Southern United States and down in Indiana and everything, and she will bag like thirty pound catfish with her bare hand, and not once did she have to sexualize herself to get that. But she doesn't get the following that the yeah, others
2: do. Totally. No, I totally agree. But and the other, but the other thing that's come up a lot, and I've had this conversation with some some folks recently too, is that the other part of it is that um, to me, if if women. Want to express themselves sexually oh, in the in the woods? Like I don't know, and, and I'm not saying this at you at all. I, I think sure. if if someone wants to express themselves sexually in the woods, um, wearing a bikini fishing, um, it is it should not be on men in the hunting community, in the fishing community, to determine whether or not they are legitimate. A hundred because they do that, and so I'm 100%. I I was just saying I'm curious about Nikki's perspective on the the pink part here because. I think what to me is, is the, is this sort of, like I say, this pink it and shrink it um, approach to women's hunting clothing in that while well, make it skin tight and throw some pink in it. And now women have hunting, hunting clothing. Um, but I think I, I'm cautious not to swing, not to kind of swing too far the other way, which is that um, well, women can't like pink if they want to be hunters then. Um, yeah. And, or, and can't fish in a bikini because if you fish in a bikini, then men are going to sexualize you and you have to not, in order to avoid men sexualizing you, you have to then change what you want to do. Totally. And uh, anyway, so I'm curious on the the, the perspective on the pink. Yes. Thing. Just yeah, because Nikki's been here for a while. Yeah. Spoken this Silently
1: sitting back. Um, it's really, really interesting because I've been actually reflecting on this a lot lately. And for the longest time in my life, I rejected pink so much. And I really think that was to do with the patriarchy and the um, disgust that you know the average male human being feels against um, feminine things such as the color pink so recently I'm like pink's my favorite color and I want to reclaim this part of me because there's no reason why I could I can't be feminine in the woods and I actually had this whole idea I was like I'm gonna get some like floral heels, put on a dress and like rock a bow drill, Cole, take some yes. photos and just like, <laughs> yes, own that because you know who the fuck says you can't do that shit.
2: Yeah, like totally. it doesn't
1: make me any less of an outdoors person to like, throw on some lipstick, dye my hair pink and wear pink camouflage.
2: No, and I don't no, no. and I think it, it drives me crazy when it's um, when you see this Disc- people women being discredited because mm-hmm. they are um, because they' they're, they're femme and because they're, they're wearing makeup in the woods or on the water. Um, and I, you know this is the con- this is a conversation that came up yesterday on Instagram. Um, and I, I, one of the ways that I've seen some, some friends of mine really kind of sum it up is, is women are get into this, get locked into this. You're too feminine and therefore this. And then, and then on the flip side, the immediate one is, well, you're not feminine enough, and therefore you know nothing. And it's, it's weaponized on both sides. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, um, these projections and portrayals of what is femininity and, and, and conversely, but, but similarly, what constitutes being a, a sort of legitimate outdoors person um, are, are absolutely weaponized against women in the outdoors on both 100%. sides
0: hundred mm-hmm. percent. It's the same things. Like when you look at like talking about firearms, like getting their first firearm, you go into almost any forum, you go into almost any chat room or any page on Facebook. And so like, Hey, getting my wife, sister, significant other, whatever into hunting, what gun should I get them? And they're like, don't get her a 12 gauge. She won't be able to handle it. Get her a 20 gauge. It's like, okay. I've met one person in my entire career as an outdoorsman who could not handle a 12 gauge. And that was my, what was his who- name? her uh it's it's my friend Christina simply because she's so tiny she couldn't reach the fore end she couldn't reach the fore end of the shotgun and when she did shoot oh yeah her, but that's a measurement thing not a that, gauge thing and then the but that's yeah. the next time we tried it with a smaller shotgun and it still caused the same trouble so we end up getting her uh a Mossberg Bantam in 20 gauge simply mm-hmm. because that's what she wanted that's what she decided would work for her and she was too scared to shoot for the longest time And then we took her duck hunting, not this past fall, but two falls back when she first got the gun. And she, we saw no ducks. It was during the October, the the October lull, uh, lull, when there's just no birds flying at all. And I'm like, well, shoot that stump out there and see how the gun feels. And she, you saw her cringe and cringe and cringe and then squeeze the trigger. Finally, press the trigger and boom, gun went off and she didn't go flying back like the last time. And she just looked at me. She's like, this gun works for me. I love this gun. At the same time, my wife, my sister, almost every woman I know and every small person I know can shoot a 12 gauge. But this whole and also I'm gonna put a little secret out for everybody. I fucking love 20 gauges.
2: I like the ballistics are in. There's nothing you can do with a 12 gauge. You cannot do with a 20 gauge. Exactly,
0: and it's it's a lot less recoil. And I like numbers
2: are there. It's cheaper.
0: as, (laughs) As someone that loves to shoot his 4570, and a guy that loves to shoot big guns. I like the fact that I can shoot a 12 gauge or shotgun that doesn't send my arm sore after 12 rounds. Mm-hmm. Like I can go, I would love to get a 20 gauge myself down the road just for me. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah, don't understand. I'm, these. like, and it's the same thing with no. knives. It's the same thing with hunting gear of any kind camping gear. My wife owns a pair of what's called red ants pants. They're uh, they're basically a woman made woman designed out in Montana, I believe. Carhartt style trousers that are as reinforced and as deep a pocket as a man's Carhartts. Mm
2: -hmm. And I'm
0: actually kind of envious because they're well-made. They're better than my Carhartts. And you go to the women's section for Carhartts and you can just count the stitches, count the stitches on that scene. And you know that they're crap. They're not going to last anywhere close to as long as my Carhartts, even though they're the exact same brand from the exact same factory. Yeah, and and uh, she, she had to go out of her way and pay 16, uh, $60 more on a pair of handmade red ants pants because she couldn't find a pair of work pants that suited her for the bush.
2: Yeah. No, I, I mean, first, like just released some new clothing this yesterday or something. And someone immediately said, Oh, great. Where's the women's line. And of course it was, well, we don't have that one yet, but there's lots of other women's clothing that we offer. You can, that you can look at of course. And it's, you know, so what I mean, I'm curious, like, so, so Nikki, when you see a pink, something with pink stitching or camo, then where are you at right now in terms of like the statement that it makes or, or the, the absolute fatigue with needing to make a statement with, with the color pink or, or like,
1: Oh, that's a hard question. Cause for one, I do see the issues with it of just like, lumping female presenting people into like a category of you know liking pink and and needing to wear these clothes that are embossed with pink but at the same time I'm glad it's available because I would 100% buy the shit out of pink camo (laughs) I don't know how well that would do me in the woods
0: I really want to get you a 1022 Ruger in hot pink now.
2: <laughs> Please.
0: <laughs> I, I shot one years ago and I loved that gun. It was the first time I shot a 1022 and I loved it. And everybody was like chuckling because I was shooting the pink one. I don't give a shit about the color pink. It's an awesome gun.
1: It's an awesome color. I, my
0: favorite color in the world is purple and people give me shit about that all the time. And they're like, that's such a feminine color. I'm like, what the hell? How is color feminine or masculine or any gender? Yeah. It's a color. If I like the color purple or I like the color pink, get off my ass. Fuchsia. Fuck it. I'm wearing fuchsia from now on. All the Canadian bushcraft swag that we're going to eventually make in the next year is just going to be all fuchsia.
1: I support this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I want to do fuchsia because I don't want to get it tied in with the whole uh, pink, the pink ribbon for breast cancer research. I don't want to make anybody think that we're trying to get that stuff. I'm going to go strictly with fuchsia for the color.
2: It'll yeah. Fine until you're hunting some until you're hunting bears that can see in the red spectrum.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, we don't make we don't make hunting clothing, so just make that clear. We just yeah, make t shirts. Right. We make t shirts and stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, moral of the story: surround yourself with with good people. Um, totally. More than good hunters, and if you can find both, even better. Even better. Um,
0: you ever find that hunting is just sitting in the woods, taking your gun for a walk? and you're just with some good friends
2: you don't even take the gun all the time
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm just remembering one of the last hunts you and i went on it was for squirrel uh and we were out there for like two and a half hours and we knew there were squirrels around we heard them somewhere off in the distance and we kept going to where we thought we would see some and it was the walk back and we're like we're the guns are unloaded we're just strolling home and this giant black squirrel just starts running through the trees above our heads and we just went ape shit trying to load our guns and get ready oh uh, i remember and we were like 20 we were like 15 yards from your truck we weren't even like we could have just stayed by the truck the entire time but we went for like a three-hour hike looking for damn squirrels trying every tactic we knew like oh there's some elm trees quarters the quarters, and the quarters call
2: and yeah oh yeah. everything we we're trying everything the old fade away, you stay here, I'll walk away because squirrels can't <laughs> count. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Um no, I uh, squirrel hunting is great. I miss squirrel hunting a lot. Yeah, I guess um, you don't have many where you've been. No, it's just little, well, there's little red squirrels, yeah, um the pine real squirrels. tiny ground squirrels, but yeah, um not ones that are big enough to it's to really make a meal raised. out of. Yeah, exactly. So have um, you seen the crazy
0: dimorphism? not even dimorphism, but like the morph of the gray squirrel in Ontario lately?
2: No, like, like beyond just being
0: black, we, we have the black squirrel. And then in the last like 15, 20 years, I've been noticing just more and more color spectrum in the ones that live in urban areas. Or they want
2: to express themselves in pink. Let them and don't enforce
0: <laughs> hey, that. If they want to, if they want to wear pink by all means, but it's, I saw one that literally looked like a skunk and it took me like three oh, looks crazy. to confirm that it was actually not a skunk. And That's
2: wild. So th- they found, I don't know, this is a little while ago, but the ident- scientists identified the gene that causes the, the, the melanin phase in black squirrels. And it's, it, they found it's the same it's the same gene that causes um, the same sort of allele that causes black melanin phase and fox squirrels as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it totally sort of threw for a loop. Well, I it, it shouldn't say it threw for a loop, it brought into question, um, I think for at least a short time, um, shared ancestors of different squirrel species. Hmm. Um, so this is, that's, that's super interesting. And I, and there's, I did not, I was very interested to find there's a lot more to the, um, this the different color phase, face story even than, like, I, than I thought, but that's an interesting one to find that there's, there's sort of a there's, mixture. There's even a change
0: in like their gates and everything. Like the ones that live in really mm-hmm. urban areas in like Toronto and such, they're lumbering instead of hopping, they're lumbering like a skunk or a bear would rather than like hop, 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 pause, hop, 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 hop pause if they live in areas that are, that are still heavily treed, like I'm guessing high park and such in parts of Toronto. Yeah. The gates still seem to be trotting and and running and loping, but then you get to areas like downtown Toronto and there's gray squirrels living down there in the small little stands of trees. And they're just lumbering because they know that there's barely any predator to worry about. People leave them alone. And if you don't run around too much, you'll notice when the humans drop a fry. And all that kind of stuff. So now we're seeing these skunk-looking squirrels walking like skunks.
1: Like a transverse lope. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. I've
0: seen it myself on tracks, but I've also witnessed them just simply
2: the two left instead legs. Instead of move, the sort of two, two, by, right. two, two by two. Yeah. yeah, instead
0: of the the two front legs, yeah. two hind legs, yeah. two front legs, two hind legs.
2: For everyone it's... who can't see, we're all imitating the, the <laughs> we're all squirrels using running fingers, with our fingers. fingers yeah. yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> with the with the lumbering gate that I've been seeing, it's like both left feet both right feet both left feet both right feet like a skunk or a bearwood or a raccoon or at least similar to a raccoon i would say more like a skunk and it's it's really fascinating to see this change in animals because of us because we have created a whole new ecosystem that oh, animals yeah. in the last century have been learning to adapt fox coyotes then you look at like white-tailed deer have completely oh, i was just gonna say yeah completely changed their mindsets in, in urban areas. They were living in people's backyards and taking naps beside their pool and mm-hmm. jumping on. Cool. And just and
2: overall the range expansion white tailed deer in the continent, because it's insane. The settled agriculture has just been, yeah. They,
0: they were pr- like, arguably they were on the, on the east side of the Mississippi for most wow. of their range historically. And there's now talks about like whether the, the, the mule deer is actually a hybrid of the black-tailed deer of the Western Rockies and the white-tailed deer of the Mississippi. And hence one of the names, like one of the reasons they believe the name mule deer makes sense. It's a mule animal. It's a a hybrid animal, but also the giant mule-shaped ears that they got. Um, It's fascinating to see these weird changes that humans cause. Like, of course, the mass extinctions that we've created because of our ineptitude of actually caring about the land that we extract everything from. And keeping it at an exploitive level instead of a resource sharing level
1: mm-hmm. but
0: then you look at like the strange changes in animals where they're like okay this new landscape is here i'm going to use this to my advantage and use this to my full potential like fishers a boreal strict animal 25 years ago if you told somebody that fishers were going to be in port credit ontario they would have they would have laughed you out of a room let someone find a fisher in port credit I found tracks of the Fisher right behind, uh, on land on Lakeshore road where the Canadian outdoor equipment co is. If you went down to the oh shoreline, I can send you the pictures. It's a Fisher track through and through. It's not an otter way too big to be a mink. It's a Fisher. Wow. Yeah. And that was in 2011. That wow. was about a year before I met you. I found that track and I took a photo of it to verify. And I showed it to like four or five different tracking buddies. And they're like, that's a fisher there's no other animal that that could be in that landscape it was it wasn't finger like it wasn't a raccoon it was negative 37 out there was mm-hmm. definitely not a raccoon strolling around on the shore. and yeah it's they mm-hmm. they're even like 20 years ago you wouldn't even heard about them in Lindsay or peterborough area because we're just not a boreal ecosystem and then they learned that the fisher are living on the edge habitat and running the fence lines and they're using the fences as if they're their own tree ecosystem to move from one place to another to find porcupine and people's cats and barn cats and whatnot. It's I'm here incredible. in Ottawa too. Oh, I believe, well, Ottawa, I, could, I actually could believe more about Ottawa because you're in that Laurentide kind of ecosystem that's semi-boreal. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of makes more sense. You're a little bit further north than Toronto or Port Credit at least. It's, it's absolutely stunning to see these changes in animals, which has nothing really to do about what we've been talking about tonight, but we might as well ramble about it. Cause as we said, like, this is the night that we have Paul. So we might as well talk about everything we've all kind of thought about and talked about before. It's weird. It's just freaking weird to see how much change happens with animals and our relationships with them. And that's what, maybe that's the reason I've been, I was wanting to touch this subject like the animals changing and, tra- and transferring with us. Paul, a lot of your background has been like human and animal interaction and our relationships with those animals. Your PhD, what was it on again?
2: So it was, um, I did it in environmental studies at York, right? Um, and um, so I, I kind of bounced around, I, I, I um, found a way for, to be somewhat um, academically homeless, a bit of an, of an academic nomad, um, but I essentially I looked at, I was interested in understanding, um, processes and, um, kind of conditions that support, um, wild, knowledge creation about wildlife, um, involving all kinds of different, different people and different, and different knowledge systems. Um, so I was, I, w- I wanted to kind of understand, um, when we create knowledge and pol- and, and management decisions about wildlife, who, who was at the table, and what are the kind of kinds of conditions and circumstances that support that process? Um, and what are the kind of knowledge systems we need at that table um, to create a better understanding of, of the systems we're looking at and the species we're looking at um, and to, cre- and to um, maintain good relationships between the different groups of people involved in that as well. Um, so I got to, to sort of bounce around between um, straight up ecology and biology, so I got to work with ring seals and and polar bear work um, and fisheries management in in Nunavut um, and then work really closely with with scientists and government managers and um, Inuit hunters uh, and and regional managers. So I was really kind of tried to position myself at the interface between different fields of knowledge and different scientific disciplines and different communities of people so it was great. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, it makes it so that I'm not really qualified to do anything, <laughs> except be except be interested in everything. Cool. <laughs> so Excellent. I found a way to be. I I sort of joke that I worked for you know a few years for the United States of government, and I um, I had the the luxury of being able to be interested in everything, but not the burden of having to be an expert in anything. Excellent. So, and what year did you graduate from York? Uh, good question. Um, uh, this will be three years in August. So 2018 I okay. finished. So, um, I took, I, uh, I think as I said, my supervisor was great. I took a lot longer to do my PhD than, um, than I the school would have liked and that I, and, and that I needed to, because I got to be involved in a lot of great things. And each of those things that I jumped onto tended to add a year or add six months to my timeline. Um, right. but, uh, I wasn't going to pass them up. I mean, there was no no way I was going to turn them down. So yeah, 2018, I finished. Um, and so I'm going to be, this is partly what brings us to white horses. I'm going to, I'm going to be, um, spent a few years now working for a couple different governments, um, for Inuit government in Labrador for a bit and for federal government now in St. John's. Um, but I'm going to go back to academia and hop again and, um, and do a postdoc, um, Cool. uh, Similarly, looking at kind of conditions around and social ecological conditions around wildlife conservation um, and different models uh, and tools of wildlife conservation. And I'm really interested in understanding um, what works and why it works. So what are the kind of social ecological conditions that allow certain approaches and tools for wildlife management and conservation to work in certain contexts? because because you're right I'm, I'm super interested in in the in how um people and um you know landscapes and wildlife kind of all uh, kind of interact into as, as a system and that's
0: been uh that's been the, the title probably the, the 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 inspiration for the title of your of your blog landscapes and letters well, tell me more about what landscapes and letters
2: is all about what is that well it's it's sort of that it was um I I finished. I was coming to the end of my PhD work. I was a couple years away, and I was finding that um, I was so interested. As I said, I I didn't. I really brought in a lot of my personal interests and academic interests um, into that. But I, um, I was, I was surrounded by people that I was having great conversations with. You know, I talked to you very early on about starting that site, and then kind of asked you you know, is it worth it? Should I do it? Is it a waste of time? Um, Is anyone going to read it? And uh, I really just needed an outlet to to blabber on to my about some of these things, you know, about these conversations that I've been having and things that I've been thinking about. Um, but it was really about that. It was about finding a lot of um, interaction between different things I was I was learning and coming across, and wanting a place to um, to be able to explore it without having to ask anyone permission or 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 have anyone have the burden of uh, anyone evaluating it for accuracy and intelligence. So, so in other words
0: you really missed having me in a duck blind with you and that's right you had to make some sort of a some sort of a ex, uh, exception or a substitute for it
2: yeah, yeah exactly when I was sitting <laughs> alone on my computer I needed a way to get this stuff out but I would do that right I would be writing something for this part of my dissertation or a paper or something and then I would hop over and and write something much more um you know, personally rambly on there, because I would come across something and realize, oh, there's something I want to explore there. More of an Um, interest in that sense. Well, totally. And it's, and it's been super interesting in that because, um, I've connected through that. I've connected with academics, um, and with other people who have had similar kind of meandering journeys through hunting and academia, Um, and then other, just other, other people who just want to talk about hunting, who just want to talk about guns and hunting. And it. So it has been actually really interesting to kind of see the different connections that I get to make through it. Yeah. And, so and then you've, and you've got, you've been on there.
0: Yeah. Tracking. And uh, did I do another article? Or just the one. No, it's the one. Just, the oh, one. well,
2: no, you, then you and me and John had a, oh yeah. Our shared, our shared journaling. Yeah. Our, our I, think was, a, I think that was a two-parter our letters our letters I uh i think so
0: i believe yeah. it was i was really yeah. late in the game with that because i was so damn busy with everything going on here but uh yeah that was a really fun we got to do something like that again soon and uh it was uh, i'm trying to remember exactly what that was a talk what that talk was about was our conversation was about conservation
2: yeah we started off around something around hunting ethics and it it went into history and um all kinds of different topics that yeah. one um we went through we went through but that was sort of the that was that was sort of the task we set ourselves to was just seeing where the conversation went and that's something that i, I you know we talked about this before that i think hunters are so prone to to chaotic meandering conversations and that was we wanted we, we explored that in a written form and uh i don't i don't know if it uh yeah it, it was a bit of a trip i think going yeah it was from where we started but it was interesting um it was fun. I liked it. We got to do that again. Um, there's,
0: there's, a, yeah, just a, like, a, just as an ex- example, of like the conversations we've had in the past, like there's something that's been stuck in my mind since you said it to me way back. One of the last times we were out hunting, um, before you left for the North was around the time that Ontario was discussing the idea of opening the wolf hunt to help manage the moose population. And I was very much against it. I'm still very much against that perspective. Um, we've, we have did a coyote episode back in February or January um, where we talked about the coyote and I kind of dived into a lot of my opinions on wolves and why we need to like treat them with a lot more respect and not blame them for the problems that are going on. Namely the fact that they only have an 8% success rate at killing an animal. So they're not the reason moose are dying off in droves. Uh but you said that just this one sentence you said has stuck with me since 2016, 2017 area, era. And it was, you can't manage an animal or any resource by managing another. It doesn't work that way. Did I say and that. It, yeah, it was this beautiful <laughs> comment of like, you can't hunt wolves to solve the moose problem. And you said it oh, yeah. such a simple, clear way of you can't kill one animal to save another one.
2: It yeah, you can't hunt it. your way out of a habitat destruction problem. Yeah. In in the case of moose and, and many others. Um, if you destroy moose habitat and you destroy the conditions that a, that a species needs to live and you um, introduce other problems like yeah, the white-tailed deer. You can't you can't hunt your way out of that. And you can't um, because that's that that's where we're at now. And I mean hunters talk a lot about you know the the distinction you know, that we hunters criticize animal rights organizations because animal rights organizations Focus on the individual, right? They focus on the suffering of one. And hunters think about the herd, the population. We think about the well-being of all. Yeah. We really need to go and move that to Is is the habitat? Then um, it's not just enough to think about the population of deer or the herd of deer. We need to think about the deer habitat. That's when we start to get at, um, you know, the the unit of analysis or focus that. Um, that actually impacts and benefits all wildlife. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think what, you know, what we're seeing with, with moose and, you know, caribou and all, I mean, everything, hundreds of species that are facing extinction. Um,
0: There's 300,000 to 400,000 bison left across all of North America, not just Canada, not just all of North America. There's only 300 to 400,000 of them left. And if we had a project to breed bison back to their original numbers, they would still die off back to 300 to 400,000 because there's not the habitat yeah. left for them. They can't range like they used to because we have them boxed in by all these damn fences and the highways and cities where we're, yeah. we're keeping them to the numbers that they're at because that's what their number can be. If we broke down all those fences, we tore down all those highways and we let them do what they did, there's a chance that the bison numbers would go back up, but that's not feasible in our modern way that we are, because we're not changing our
2: dynamics. Yeah, and I find that people who are very pro-hunting and people who are anti-hunting fall into the same trap of the argument where people who are very ardently pro-hunting, you know, repeat this sort of refrain about, we need to hunt species to manage, them. we need to hunt them to manage their populations, we need to hunt them to manage their populations. And it, I mean, it's tiring because there are, there are a few examples where we absolutely, certain jurisdictions in north america for instance that hunt deer and moose white tail deer and moose because their numbers are their populations are um, just beyond carrying capacity right yeah. and then you have anti-hunting groups who say well that's not we don't manage wildlife. just let them manage themselves let nature take care of itself and i think in both the, both those arguments um suffer from the same ethical oversight or moral oversight which is that humans have converted and changed landscapes to such a great extent now that we now it's gone now from a luxury to or an air or to or to, to think that we are going to manage wildlife to a responsibility to do it. Um, you don't get to turn the, the clock back anymore. We've converted landscapes and habitats and destroyed habitats and the non the non-habitat components, um, climate. Um, yeah. water quality yeah. uh, which is habitat, with that right but we've converted and changed and degraded those to such an extent now that you don't get to not manage wildlife anymore because um it, it, we, we need to it, to yeah. maintain the health of wildlife
0: How in some cases hunting
2: doing? might be the tool of that but in other cases it's not um and i think that that's something that that sort of frustrates me about the, the real kind of pro hunting arguments too is it's always about hunting is hunting is a tool for that's management and, and conservation and, and other it sometimes it's the most appropriate one and sometimes it's not um and in many cases we need strong habitat protection that's what we need and that's not to say hands off human humans out i'm not talking to the fences up model of habitat protection um but we need to protect habitat from development and destruction um mm-hmm. as the as the main imperative of conservation 100 um, percent but yes, yeah, so I find these arguments on both sides is, you know, well, we need to hunt them to, to manage their populations or don't hunt them to manage their populations. And, it, and it's, you know, I think we need to think a much broader scale, right?
0: It's an analogy that I can put towards our bushcraft community is, you wouldn't use a knife alone to carve the whole paddle. You need an ax, you need a saw, you need a crooked knife, potentially. You need sandpaper in some cases. You need scrapers in other cases. It depends on the paddle, depends on the wood, and depends on the situation you're in. Wildlife management, ecosystem management is the exact same thing. You have a plethora of tools. And in some cases, the knife, in this case, the gun is an option. It's a tool that can, that can work. And in some cases, it's just not necessary. Personally, I think the, like, and i know this is not like this is probably not based on any actual scientific analysis or research and more probably just simply my opinion from observations i don't think we should have white-tailed deer north of penetanguishin perry sound area personally i don't think white-tailed deer should be up there when we're talking about protecting the moose we're going to wipe out the wolves or hunt the wolves not wipe out nobody ever says wipe out except for the real anti-wolf people
2: mm-hmm. but
0: Instead of that, maybe we should do a moratorium on moose hunting. We talked about this in one of our attempted podcasts in the past. We were, for those who don't know, like 2015, Paul and I were trying to get a podcast off the ground. And one of them, we talked about the moose moratorium concept. And the idea was, should we stop hunting moose for like three, four, five years? And then the argument always comes up. Well, then the people that depend on that moose meat, well, okay. Give them longer seasons and more tags for white-tailed deer, because the white-tailed deer is not a native to those areas. And they are bringing brainworm, potentially chronic wasting disease, and dozens of other potential risks to the moose. And they outcompete the moose because more deer in one square acre can be present compared to the moose. And so not saying we should kill the deer to help the moose, but if we're going to remove one option of hunting, increase the other one and see where where that goes because where you lived up in uh, Labrador there was the caribou moratorium that they were working on with the Inuit Mm -hmm. and I remember Christine uh, your partner said to me at one point that they offered instead moose as the option for a lot of people and they they weren't really keen on it because moose didn't taste good to them compared to the caribou. But there was more moose in the area than there ever had been in the past because they're not native to that range. They've been being pushed north by climate change. Mm -hmm. So maybe you should hunt the moose instead of the caribou while we do this moratorium. And that was an option. And Mm -hmm. I'm saying the same thing about the white-tailed deer with the moose in our area. If I could stop hunting moose and I knew that everybody else around me stopped hunting moose, I'd be fine with stopping. And that's kind of like this whole like, I will still stop. If they said right now that we should not hunt moose anymore, I'll stop but it frustrates me when other groups are like, no, no, I'm just going to keep hunting them. Cause I've seen that happen before. People, uh, one group will say that they ethically oppose hunting that animal or fishing that animal or whatever it may be. And then other group says, well, we don't see a problem with this. We're going to keep going. And yeah. it, it kind of imbalances the whole point of that moratorium or that halt or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And it gets very frustrating for me to watch that. So for me, it's like, okay, well, dear, like, the last time I hunted moose in Pick River area up near Magneto, uh, not Magneto, I'm sorry, um, uh, Manitowatch, which is where I used to moose hunt as a youth. The very last time I went there, we didn't see a single moose the entire time we hunted. No, no one saw moose. It was very warm for October. It was extremely warm. It was 28 degrees the day we got there, which is like 20 degrees too warm for moose to be moving around and doing stuff. But on the one evening, we sat there and watched a herd of white-tailed deer of 22 or 23 white-tailed deer, I can't remember how many I counted, walk between my father's and I's blinds, where we found these old tree stands that somebody had built overlooking a swamp. So we got up into those stands and we were watching this herd of deer move to a muskeg like they were caribou. And when we got back, we talked to a couple of locals and they're like, yeah, those deer we've never seen before until like four years ago. And now they're just overwhelming this area. And we haven't seen a fraction of the moose that we used to see in this area because they're just getting pushed out by the deer. So those kinds of perspectives that I've seen observations that I've seen lean, lean me towards like, I should deer hunt more than I ever moose hunt. And I've been trying to encourage a lot of other people that like, Oh man, I'd love to go and do a backcountry moose. I was like, Hey, let's go deer hunting. Let's go get like these, like i did a i did a talk about white-tailed deer back in the fall on the on one episode that we did um and in that i had to do like actual research and find like how many white-tailed deer are there there are 45 million white-tailed deer in north america
2: yeah 45 there are
0: there are 36 million canadians
2: yeah and they just and and i mean that that population has gone up there from in, in in a short period of time, really, yeah. right? Yeah. From from really when you started started seeing massive conversion to settled agriculture and to, to you know clearing land for agricultural plots, and that means the white-tailed deer population has a, has that is truly an exponential growth in the last um, you know 150 years, yeah, or whatever. Um, but I uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, did the, the impacts on moose, white-tailed deer are are more of an impact on moose than wolves, than ever wolves ever are? Be. know because of brainworm, because of diseases and that those range um kind of overlaps are yeah exactly a a factor of of climate change and habitat change Mm -hmm. and and, um yeah absolutely and i mean we we need to be able to manage based on those interactions but hunters also need to yeah exactly like you're saying we need to take that on ourselves um and i was seeing i one of the things that i really we talk about these sort of romantic narratives and hunting and what really you know when i started hunting one of the things that i that i really liked that really kind of spoke to me was this idea that like that hunters are the best wildlife biologists um and that hunters are out there and they're the ones who know the wildlife and they're the best biologists and i that really that really sort of spoke to me this idea that you know um that we can can really get to know wildlife and really understand um that and so that's great but we kind of can't have our cake and eat it too where um we say well we understand science and we're biology we're the best biologists in in this Um, but then you have these cases where hunters are saying well i will not give up the moose hunt or i will not change my predator hunting practices even though new knowledge has come out and new science has come out Um, you know, where I'm kind of going with this is, is things around, um, you know, coyote killing contests and wolf hunting and things, and people kind of clinging to these ideas to continue hunting, you know, the whole shoot a wolf, save a deer thing. Um, and, um, you know, yes, hunters are biologists and we're out there on the land, but then we have to, then we have to be on top of it and take it on take it upon ourselves to, to, to stay informed and to, Sort of follow the best available knowledge that's out there, and I think, particularly right now, we're seeing a sort of a moment in time where hunters are 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 digging into things, um, into the into perspectives and into um, their understandings of knowledge, and not following new knowledge about certain issues, um, and whether that's um, predator hunting or like your example, moose hunting or, or um, you know uh, and i think we need to really get to this kind of place of humble knowledge where we we are following the best available knowledge and willing to to see where that brings us rather than finding knowledge that reinforces our pre-existing priorities about hunting
0: totally and there's a lot of different directions we could take that conversation um we may want to save that for a later episode because this has gone on almost for two hours now we've been talking hour and 45 minutes or so And, uh, I'm not sure how much of an evening you got in store for us, uh, for yourself as well, but, uh,
1: we trying to think of how to explain this. There's a lot of
0: information out there and a lot of people just don't want to change their perspective, similar to what you were just saying, like. A long time I was like, okay, I don't, I don't hunt the big bucks. I hunt the younger ones. I, I hunt the ones that have small antlers cause this or that, and all those kinds of different op- opinions that come up. And then I was listening to people like Doug Durin talking about their hunts and how they changed when I was watching their documentary, uh, Stephen L's documentary, uh, stars in the sky. And Doug was talking about like, actually, no, we should leave a lot of those younger bucks alone and target the larger bucks and only hunt the larger bucks because that allows those younger bucks that we think of as genetically inferior to actually become stronger because it's, it's not as cut and dry as genetics. It's not just genetics. A deer's antlers have nothing necessarily to do with age, a little bit to do with age, but not as much as you think. It has a lot to do with their diet. It's their diet. It's their
2: genetics to a degree. Maternal health when they're born. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's habitat quality. Yeah.
0: All these different things. It's, it's not a black and white, issue it's we have to look at everything and as a person who hunts that really shook me up and i knew that already i knew of those concepts already but not as full spectrum as doug kind of hit me in the face with with that documentary when he was Mm -hmm. talking and that really did help me out a lot It, it made me change up a lot of my perspectives and there's a lot of ethics with hunting like i have always try to avoid shooting does and and cows just because i've mm-hmm. always looked at the perspective like i'd rather see more babies down the road um but like with almost anything else on day nine of a of a, of a nine-day <laughs> season you see that doe
2: mm, oh, that's a trophy doe
0: yeah. that's a trophy doe right there and that's when that that ethic starts to slip on a lot of people i've tried not to but I've on occasion been the one to shoot like that we got that with you and I we shot that one that could have mm-hmm. very easily been a dobo when we looked there was spikes coming up not much yeah. and there was clearly don ads on it so it was clearly a male um, and that was the that was the day you saw me use that knife of mine
2: oh yeah 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 yeah
0: <laughs> that was the day you're like I need to buy that knife like the first time Paul and I ever met I was in a kind of like the like an office space area uh, for where i was working at Trent university at the time and paul walks and i was getting introduced to him by by my boss who was his partner at the uh, his partner my boss at the time she goes this is my my boyfriend paul this is my employee caleb you guys both like to hunt and paul looks over at my laptop in the background was the cad file drawing of my knife of the, of the d flag 4.5 and he's like what knife is that like where's that knife from and i was like oh i designed that it's coming out this fall and he's like who, who are you? So what do you do? And that's when we started having our conversation. And I think it was like that fall, we bagged a, uh, the the doe looking buck and the old uh,
1: buttons,
2: yeah.
0: pulled out my knife. We had that thing gutted in less than a minute and a half, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Paul was just like, I really like that knife. I want to get that knife. I'm like, son of a bitch. That was me. I skid, I gutted that deer. The knife just, I was, I was so annoyed that I had done such a good job. <laughs> gutting the deer and he went right into that joke of like
2: i gotta Uh, get me that knife yeah
0: math math is only
2: as good as his tools yeah
0: (laughs) tools only as good as his master right (laughs) but yeah um we've had a lot of long talks since then and i'm you guys who are listening and you can tell that we can have long talks we do this quite a bit
2: yeah and this time we just happened to record it yeah we just happened to
0: record it and this time actually be able to get it onto a podcast platform so yeah that's what else would you like to talk about if there's anything else you'd like to bring up is there anything else you want to really touch on anything you want to promote what you're up to anything like that
2: oh my gosh wasn't ready for this one come on give me some information. Um, no i don't i don't i don't think anything specific i mean um yeah, no, nothing, nothing in particular. I'm, I'm um, kind of involved in a few different things and just sort of interested to see where they're going right now. Um, um, you know, including hopefully some some new stuff with you, but um, um, no, I, I, I appreciate the conversation. I think it's, like I say, I think it's cool that we could go from um, across such a wide range of topics. Um, so I, I appreciate the, the breadth of, of kind of topics that we can seamlessly cover in that time. So thanks so much. Awesome. Well, Paul uh, kind of mentioned
0: that we're working on a project. I am working on uh, the journey of the hunter, I believe is what it's called right now, or the hunter's journey. Thank you. The hunter's journey is a online course that Chris Gilmore has been working on with me for the last uh well we did the beta back in the fall the beta run with a bunch of students of his and now we're getting ready to ramp it up and uh Paul may become one of our affiliates when we get that going so if you want to check that out uh to be run through chrisoutdoors.com through the hunter's journey but uh it's not up yet but I believe the mailing list or the uh the register list is up right now the pre-order to join in and yeah there's a lot going on there's a lot that we're ready to do And Paul, I'm hoping to bring in as a special guest for that, but I'm also hoping to bring Paul in for a few more episodes in the future. Like I want to, I really want to do a hunting episode coming up as much as Paul and I hate these kinds of like gear talk episodes and all that kind of stuff. Mostly we like to focus on like mindset, but that could be part of that is like the 10 things you should do to prepare yourself for hunting this year. This is the perfect time of year, mid uh, early spring to, to mid spring, even late spring is a great time to get ready for hunting. Of course, there is hunting that's coming up here in Ontario. We have the bear hunt coming up, the black bear spring bear hunt, as well as wild turkey hunt coming up. Uh, I'm not really big on either one of those, but this year I'm thinking of getting a little bit more into turkey hunting myself. But yeah, we're going to be bringing Paul back for a couple more episodes in the future. This is not the last time you'll hear from Paul McCartney. And uh, I want to thank Paul and I want to thank Nikki for coming in with me tonight. Thank them so much for sitting down for almost two hours with me to figure this stuff out and chat about it and share their thoughts and their own perspectives. Thank you so much for that guys. And for all of you out there, I want to thank our patrons, people like Paul, who's actually our very first patron way back when. Uh, I just kind of told him one day that he was asking me like, Hey, how are you going to keep Canadian bushcraft afloat with everything going on? I was like, actually, we're setting up a Patreon." He goes, Oh, cool. Let me see the link. Let me see what that's about. I was like, yeah, we're launching in April. And he's like, this is late March, like almost a year ago now. And Paul was like, click. I'm now your first patron before you even launched. I was like, you bastard
2: so what
1: tier are you what tier are you though paul
2: <laughs> the longest running one next <laughs> question know. please <laughs> maybe it's about the
0: quality not the quantity
2: maybe yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah, yeah Paul has been with us for a long time on patreon and those of you that want to get a little bit more access to stuff and have a little bit more say and potentially be a guest on the podcast jump over to patreon join us there and we will suit ourselves to however we can to suit your needs we'll do whatever we can to suit your needs with the podcast with content with ideas your own stories anything like that that you are looking for people like Paul McCartney, people like Nikki Satira who's also a patron over at Patreon Uh, people like Renee Nolting people like Martin Heidinga and so many others thank you all of you for keeping the lights on here at the podcast much love to all of you take care we will see you again next week